Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. We're going through John 11 today. We're continuing our series on the divinity of Christ, okay? So today we're going to be talking about John 11, this passage that Chris read. But before we begin, Brian Johnson. Has anyone ever heard of that guy, Brian Johnson? Okay, if you haven't heard of this guy, you're probably going to hear of him soon. But this is the man who sold his company to PayPal for $800 million and spends $2 million a year to stay forever young. Including in his madness is receiving plasma transfusions from his 17-year-old son, taking over 100 pills a day, eating over 70 pounds of veggies a month, and attempting to use AI to maximize his health. Behind all this is an obsession with eternal youth. And though his methods are new, this obsession is not. Explorers for centuries have led expeditions to find the fountain of youth. Toby Keith in his song, As Good As I Once Was, used to sing, I got a few years on me now, but back in my, there was a time back in my prime. Professional athletes focused on extending their prime, their athletic ages of competition, will do cold chambers. They'll hire massage therapists after every game. They'll have a dietitian who maps out every single one of their meals so that their athletic peak will extend. But the reality is we all get old. Father time is undefeated. We all decay, and eventually we all die. In the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and blessing and calamity you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Due to sin, everyone dies. Due to sin, everyone will face this reality. Sin, one of its effects is that it corrupted the body. Each of us will die. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, when realized that this is going to happen... Man seeks to find out a hope. Some people, like Brian Johnson, the only hope is to delay the inevitable. For others, it's to deny the reality of an afterlife. And for some, it is to numb, distract, or even forget about death altogether. But for the Christian, but for the Christian, the only hope in life and death is this. The only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the distinct hope that the Christian has. The way in which we respond to death is different than anyone else. Because our hope is not in our performance. Our hope is not in some good enough line that we exceeded. But our hope is in Jesus Christ, to God and to our Savior, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only agent of hope in life or death. Today we'll see that as the resurrection and the life, Jesus is the only hope in life and death. And we are going to see that because Christ is the resurrection and the life, then we must believe in him to overcome death. 
and receive eternal life. Jesus is the only hope in life and death. And we see that today in this passage, Jesus reveals his authority over death. Jesus weeps over the result of sin, which is death. And Jesus resurrects, demonstrating his power over death. So our passage today is John 11, 17-44. You should have been there when Chris read it. But before we read it, let's set the stage on how we got here, how we got to this moment, okay? So what's taken place prior to these few verses is that coming into John 11, in the narrative that we see in John, what we have is much of Jesus' public ministry has already taken place. He's performed miracles, signs and wonders, all these things. And there have been six major miracles that have already taken place that have proved that he is the Son of God. And this is the seventh and final miracle that proved Jesus' identity, that he was the Son of God. Some of the other miracles include healing, healing the blind man, right? Putting the clay on it, spitting in the clay, putting it on his eyes, making him see. Each of these things revealed that he was the Son of God. However, he has one more miracle. And this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Right after this passage kind of starts the journey to the cross. It leads to his arrest, his, his eventual trial, and state-sponsored execution. But despite that, Jesus proceeds. A messenger comes to Jesus and the 12 disciples, telling Jesus that his friend, his dear friend, the, the friend that he loves, is dying. Now his sisters, Martha and Mary, they sin for Jesus. They're aware of his ability to heal. But instead of going immediately, Jesus does something. He delays. He doesn't go immediately, but he delays. There was purpose in his delay. In verse 14, Jesus knows before they leave that Lazarus is dead. He intentionally waits two days for the expressed purpose of God's glory. It says, for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, going to where Lazarus was would mean going to Bethany. Bethany, it says, is very close to Jerusalem. Jesus has already faced persecution in Jerusalem from the religious leaders. So going to Jerusalem, going to Lazarus, would mean going near danger. It would mean going near danger. The closer he was to Jerusalem, the closer he was to danger. But despite this dangerous, dangerous mission, Thomas, known for his doubt, says something really beautiful. He says, let us also go that we may die with them, displaying in contrast to his doubt, his courage. And so that's where we find Jesus. The disciples and Jesus go to Bethany and find Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So let's read it together, that context. Verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them. So my first point today is that Jesus reveals his authority over death. In this first section of the passage, what we see is that Jesus reveals something about his nature. Who he is as the Son of God, he reveals in this passage. And we'll get to it in a moment, but to set the stage, in verse 17, John, John, the author of this book, wants to make it clear that Lazarus is dead. What does he say? Lazarus had been dead already. He had been in the tomb for four days. Previously in the book of John, Jesus has raised people to life, but they had only been dead maybe a day or for a few moments. But here, John makes it clear that there is no doubt about it that Lazarus is dead. This is so significant to know that Lazarus, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, he is dead. And in verse 17 and 18, it sets the stage for the miracle that's about to happen. It says that he was in Bethany near Jerusalem, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them. So they arrive in Bethany, and like I said earlier, they are near Jerusalem. And this is important because as they were near Jerusalem, it would be dangerous for Jesus to draw attention to himself, right? It would be dangerous for him to perform a miracle because it would mean a threat on his life was imminent. And as noted in verse 19, it says there are many Jews here. This isn't some private miracle that he's about to perform, but it's in front of a large crowd of people. So whenever Jesus performs this miracle later in this passage, just know that it's not a quiet miracle. There are a lot of people in observance to see that what Jesus did really happened. And at the end of these verses, there will be no question who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God. There's no hiding. There's just too many people there. Next in verse 20, we see Martha, the active sister. If you're familiar with Martha and Mary, Martha is the busybody. 
She goes to Jesus while Mary, the more passive sister, she stays behind. And in a moment, Jesus will reveal to his friend Martha who he really is. This is what he'll say. So Martha begins the conversation. She says, Lord, if you had been here, here, my brother would not have died. So in this passage, I want to note something about Martha that's pretty significant. Simultaneously, she expresses both her belief and her grief. Her belief and her grief. She believed that Jesus could have healed Lazarus. She says, if you had been here, as if location mattered to Jesus' power. But remember the reason why Jesus intentionally delayed. In the previous verses, I explained that Jesus intentionally delayed because it was for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. See, Martha already knew that Jesus had the power to heal, but she didn't know that he had the power to raise people to life, especially after four days. So what we have is this importance that arises from Lazarus's death, that it's significant that he's dead, because this was going to be a miracle not showing that he, Jesus can just heal broken bodies, but that he can heal dead bodies. This was going to be a declaration and a miracle that Christ's power exists over the very nature of death. This has physical ramifications and it has spiritual ramifications, okay? So her face shows up in verse 22, and she says, But even now, I know that whatever you ask from, God, God will give you. How many of our prayers could simply be a version of this? My life isn't what I wanted, but even now I trust you. I don't know why you took this from me, but even now I lean on your character. Maybe you're feeling right now today the grief that Martha is feeling right now. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you're still dealing and reeling from the loss of a loved one. But even now, I declare your promises. In the midst of losing my loved one, I don't know why I lost this person. My loved one is gone. I don't know how to bear it. But even now, I declare your promises. See, Martha didn't know what Jesus was going to do here. But she knew Jesus. She didn't know what, Mar what Jesus was going to do. But he, she knew Jesus. She still trusted him. Jesus responds in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. At this point, Jews understood that there would be a resurrection of the dead on the last day, right? And this is an Old Testament promise. And that's why Martha responds in this way in 24, saying, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Meaning I have hope, but that's not doing a lot for me right now. My brother is still gone. She had hoped that one day this promise would be fulfilled, but she had no idea that Jesus had the power over death, that he could do it right now. She knew that God had the power to raise people from the dead and believed that Lazarus would rise again. She just didn't believe it would happen right now. Verse 25 continues. It says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes lives and believes in me, shall never die. And do you believe this? I'm going to spend some time here for a moment. See, previewing his seventh sign, he hasn't performed it yet. He he's going to prove that he is the Son of God. But 
Before he does that, he gives Martha some insight on the significance of the miracle that he's about to perform by declaring this I am statement. Now, as we've gone through the series, we've learned that this phrasing that John uses and Jesus declares, I am, is a reference to the name of God in the Old Testament, in which for any Jewish listener of the day, when you would say this phrase, you would know that it was a reference to the I am or Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. So when Jesus using this I am language, he is doing something. He is declaring his divinity. But not only is he declaring his divinity, whatever he says I am X, he's declaring a characteristic of his divinity. See, Christ is the revelation of God. We know God by looking at Christ. And so when he says something like this, not only is he declaring his divinity, but he is revealing God. And so what is he revealing about God in himself by saying this? Well, as the resurrection and the life, he is the only hope in life and death. He reveals his divinity in this statement. See, as the bread of life, he's the only one who satisfies. As the light of the world, he dispels sin's darkness. As the door, he is the entrance to security and fellowship. As the good shepherd, he is the perfect protector. Now, as the resurrection and the life, he is saying that he is the only one who gives anyone hope in this life and in death. See, Jews believed that God would resurrect believer, believers. But once again, Jesus is revealing what that looks like. He's revealing that he would be the one. He would be the person doing the resurrecting. By saying, I am the resurrection, he is showing and giving insight into this Old Testament promise that he would be the one, the person who would do the resurrecting. He is the resurrection. See, in this phrase, he's, he's declaring two different things. He's simultaneously declaring two different things. Number one, he is the one who overcomes death. No human is able to raise themselves from the dead. But Jesus overcomes death. And he is the one who sustains life. He is the one who sustains life. See, this phrase, the resurrection and the life, is so foundational to understanding, to our understanding of salvation. It is only through Christ that anyone receives eternal life. Even if you die physically, Jesus gives eternal life. He says, though he die, yet shall he live. But not only will you receive eternal life, that eternal life is secure. It is secure because it is based not on your works, but on the finished work of the cross. He says in verse 26, it is literally translated, shall not die forever. Shall not die forever. This life is eternally secure. Jesus here is revealing his authority over death, my first point. And by using this I am statement and declaring that whoever believes in him would have eternal life shows that he is revealing his authority over death. Later, he's going to prove it. See, authority matters, doesn't it? Authority determines if something happens or not. When, the book, when we book an event on campus, okay, when we book an event on campus, we have to go through the proper authorities. We have to ask the per person who's in charge on what happens or not, and we have to get approval from them. 
They determine whether the event happens or not, okay? When you apply to become a student at OU, you have to go through the proper authorities. The authority on admission is the Office of Admissions. When Brent Venables recruits a player, it is by his authority that he awards a football scholarship. See, authority determines whether something happens or not. Similarly, Jesus has authority over death. Now, Jesus ends, if we can go back in verse 26, he ends with a question. He ends with a question, but he wasn't questioning her belief of a doctrine. She was, he was questioning her belief in him, in a person. She responds by saying this in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord. And notice it's not a belief in a doctrine. It's a belief in a person. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Martha believed, right? Now, what's so amazing about this profession of faith, it is the clearest expression of faith that we have seen so far in the book of John. And if you have a moment, turn to your Bible in John 20, 31. This is basically the last verse of John before he has this epilogue, okay? And he basically declares his purpose and why he writes the book of John. And as you read it, I want you to just look at how similar the language is, okay? John 20, 31 says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I don't think it's an accident that John included this statement of faith right here at the, at the climax of Jesus' revelation of who he is. This climax, this seventh sign, is the revelation of who Jesus is in the most significant way in the book of John. After she believes, what happens? After she believes, she immediately becomes an evangelist, okay? She brings her sister to the one who could save her. This is what it says in verse 28. When she, Martha, had said this, Martha went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus reveals he has authority over death. And frankly, thank goodness, because our efforts on this earth they obviously aren't working. So let's talk about this at our tables for the next five, 10 minutes, and then we'll come back and we'll go through the second and third points, okay? Okay, guys, we're gonna come back. So in our first shaft, we talked about how Jesus reveals his authority. And next we are going to see that Jesus weeps over the result of sin, which is death. So here's Jesus' interaction with Mary after Martha gets her. Okay, so verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So the Jews are going to the tomb, okay? Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So she echoes the same belief that Martha had, believing that he could have healed Lazarus if he was present as if distance mattered. But so far, we've seen Jesus' divinity claimed, right? Jesus claims his divinity in the previous section. Uh, but here we're going to see a different side of Jesus, which is his humanity. 
So verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So it appears that there's some Jews that did follow Mary, okay? And Jesus sees her weeping, and the Jews who were with her also weeping, consoling her. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I want to break down this word deeply moved here. When you look at the original language and what it actually means, it might not mean what you expect it to mean. Now, when I first read this in my first viewing, what I assumed deeply moved meant was that he was sad, that he was compassionate and felt what they were feeling, that he was feeling the distraught feelings that the, the people there were feeling about Lazarus's death. But what we find is what this actually means is that it signifies to fret or to be painfully moved, to express indignation against. This verb is closer to groaning or having feelings of anger, rage, or indignation. Likely, I think what, happen, what is happening here is that Jesus is upset over the result of death. Death is not a good thing, right? It is a destruction of the divinely created image of God, which is mankind. It is a result of sin. I believe that Jesus is upset at the result of sin, death and the sadness that death causes. It says in verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Jesus, upset over the result of sin, weeps. Some of the Jews there think he weeps over the sadness that he feels over losing Lazarus. And other Jews believe that he weeps because he was unable to save Lazarus. Both are untrue. He's up, he was about to resurrect Lazarus. And if he could do that, then there was no need to be sad over him being dead. And if he was sad about, it doesn't make sense that he was sad about being unable to heal Lazarus, because if he's about to resurrect the dead, then he totally could have healed him if he wanted to. And he already demonstrated that he had that ability. He was weeping over the result of sin. This was why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes on him, what? Shall not. If he loved this world so much to die, then he must have hated sin. But we can never forget that Jesus was 100% human. He wept, right? He was tired. He was tempted. He thirsted. He was, he was human. And though it's a mystery, we can't deny the fact that he is 100% human and 100% God. As Christians, we have to be adamantly horrible mathematicians, right? We have to believe that he's 100% God and 100% man, right? That may equal 200% and that doesn't make sense. But we have to uphold both of those truths with the same force, that he was 100% God and that he was 100% man. If he was not human, he could not die. If he was not God, his sacrifice wouldn't be enough. So what do we do in response to this reality? 
in response to this reality that Jesus weeps over the result of sin, which is death. Well, really, it comes back to this reality that Jesus is the bridge between the divine and human. He is the bridge between the divine and the human. Moses, remember, could not see God's glory because it would have killed him. But Christ is the corresponding point between the human and the divine. Jesus is our bridge. He is our temple, the meeting point between us and God. Jesus even calls himself such when he says that the temple will be destroyed and raised in three days. Now, believing this, believing this, actually believing this, it affects our prayer and it affects our worship because God is not far off, because God is not distant, but God is so near that he came to this earth in, the, in, in flesh. The same is true today. When Chris preached, he talked about the fact that Jesus is omnipresent. No matter where we are, we can go to Jesus. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a priest. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our priest. We can come confidently to the throne of grace, as it says in Hebrews, because of and through Jesus. Your sin struggles? Guess what? Jesus understands. He was tempted. The loss of a loved one? Jesus understood. He lost loved ones. Your frustrations with life? Jesus understands because he lived life. Do you see the beauty of Jesus being both 100% God and 100% man affects our relationship with him because he gets us in the sense that he lived this life. He understands the struggles that we go through and the temptations that we face because he experienced them himself. Jesus being 100% human, he understands and empathizes with what we are going through. But praying to him, because he is God, means he has the power to do something about it. Isn't that beautiful? That the God that we worship, through Jesus Christ, we can know him intimately and perfectly, and he can know us intimately and perfectly. Jesus has authority over death, and he weeps over the result of sin, which is death. But does he do anything about it? Yes. He does. And that's what we're going to see. Jesus is the only hope in life and death. And that's the climax of the story, right? That is where it is perfected. And that's my last point, is that Jesus resurrects. Jesus resurrects, demonstrating his power over death. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved, deeply moved, again, that same word, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So Jesus, feeling that same emotion, approaches Lazarus' tomb, and even though Martha believed Jesus would raise Lazarus, she didn't believe that he would raise him right then. Jesus said to her in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Even though Martha in her doubt, in her unsureness, demonstrates faith. In response to Jesus saying this, she willingly lets the stone be removed. Despite the risk of 
embarrassment, despite the risk of the stench seeping out of the tomb, she trusts Jesus because she knows his character. She knows that he is trustworthy. Sometimes we need to be reminded of Jesus' words, right? Martha displays an act of faith in response to what? The words of Jesus. The words of Jesus are powerful. The words of Jesus are the words of God. See, first, notice what happens here. Jesus reminds her of what he told her. Second, she responds in faith. See, the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It is a faith rooted in history, that is rooted in fact, is rooted in reason. But remember what empowers faith. It is not the logic, it is not the history, it is not the reason. It is the Holy Spirit through the gospel message. It is the words of God, right, that empower faith. So you may be going through a dry season spiritually. Maybe you're in this room and thinking, yeah, my faith isn't what I want it to be. There's nothing you can do to motivate yourself to be more faithful. There's nothing you can do to say, okay, now I have more faith. That is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, and only God can do that. And he uses words to affect it. So are you reading the words of Jesus? Are you reading the words of Scripture? If you don't have a Bible reading plan, start today. If you're wondering why you're in a dry season spiritually, maybe it's because you're not interacting with this holy book, the words of God. Maybe it's because you're not in prayer, hearing God through the scriptures and through the church. Find time to read the words of Jesus, the words of God, the inspired words of God by consuming the Bible. Treat it as if it was a meal, that it was your means of life. Those words empower faith. Continuing, second part of verse 41. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So in in the preview of this passage, I mentioned what Jesus was talking about with the disciples. He already knew that Lazarus was dead, but he knew that it was important that he was dead so that God's glory might be shown through God's son. One thing I love about this is that he doesn't offer a prayer request. He offers up a prayer of thanksgiving. Not only did the Father and the Son have an undivided mind, an undivided will, but this shows how planned out this was. Right? Jesus, when he came to this earth in the form of the baby, came on a rescue mission. Nothing that happened while he was on this earth was a surprise to him. Jesus, before he even arrived to Bethany, said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Jesus didn't come up with this on the fly, but it was the plan all along. Jesus is about to make good on his promise. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. See, this is not the first time in the Bible that someone has been raised from the dead. Elijah and Elisha did it. 
but they had to work hard over these miracles. Jesus raised Lazarus, Lazarus with a word. Jesus had raised other people from the dead, but guess what? None of them had been dead this long and started to stink, right? Jesus may have said he had authority over death, and he may have been upset with the result of sin, which is death, but here he demonstrates his power over death. Jesus' words aren't empty. Jesus' words aren't empty. He's reliable. And this, my friends, is the miracle that showed unequivocally that he was the Son of God. See, sometimes people talk a big game, right? People talk a big game. They talk the talk, but they don't necessarily walk the walk. If you guys know me, you know I love the NBA. I love basketball, and I love the OKC Thunder. And this year during the playoffs, there was a character by the name of Dylan Brooks, okay? He was a small forward for the Memphis Grizzlies. And Brooks, he, he's kind of known for his defense and he, how he's pretty much annoying to the whole NBA. And this is what he says when talking about LeBron James, the greatest basketball player of this generation. This is what he said. I don't care. He's old. I poke bears. I don't respect someone's game until he gives me 40. His team lost three of the next four games and they were eliminated from the playoffs, okay? So he had big talk, but he couldn't pack it. He couldn't back it up at all. In contrast, Jesus not only talked big that he had the authority over death, but he backed it up unquestionably, unquestionably raising to life a dead person. He didn't just seem dead. He was dead. There was no doubt that Jesus could raise the dead. And that is our hope in life and death, that one day Christ will raise Christians at the rapture and we will reign with Jesus. So your hope is not in self-help. It's not in delaying the inevitable. It's not medical wonders to slow down the aging process. It's not to deny the reality of death or numb ourselves. We will all die. And the only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. This, my friends, was a miracle and a declaration of Christ's power over the very nature of death. We've seen that Jesus is, only the, is the only hope in life and death by seeing that, number one, he reveals his authority over death. He weeps over the result of sin, which is death. And Jesus resurrects, demonstrating his power over death. Because Christ is a resurrection in the life, we must believe in him to overcome death and receive eternal life. I'd be foolish to believe that no one in this room is free of loss. I've lost loved ones personally, and I know many who deal with loss. And we ourselves, we're not promised a day. We're not promised a week. We're not promised a year. But the hope that we have is different. The hope that we have is miraculous. It's beautiful and it's full of joy. We may decay, we may die, but we die without fear because we know that one day, one day that we will be perfected in Christ. One day, those who are in Christ will experience and, and experience life with Jesus in a glorified body where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more death. I will die one day, you will die one day, and one day we will all face judgment for our life, but there is only one path to salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ. 
So have you trusted in the resurrection and the life? Have you trusted in him to resurrect your own life? There's only one who can conquer death and his name is Jesus. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sending us Jesus so that we might know you, God. Thank you for sending us a savior, one who would die in our place that we might be raised to life, that we might walk this life with that resurrection power affected by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for whoever in this room might be struggling with the realities of death or maybe the loss of the loved one. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that you would comfort them by your spirit. Lord, we see in your word that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that he is a comforter. And Lord, I ask that you would comfort us, that you would remind us of the hope that we have in this life that is only through Jesus. God, thank you for this room. Thank you for each and every person in this room that you would affect the life change that you desire for them. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.